Welcome to Associated, a podcast making venture capital more accessible. My name is Francesca and I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host Petra. Petra, how are you? Hello, I'm very good. You know, just got off four days of, of a holiday, so I am super refreshed, super excited, you know, ready to go. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. And I'm very excited to be introducing our guest today, Double Trouble, actually. So we've got Mark and Ollie from Fuel Ventures. Hello, both. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you, Ollie? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Thanks for having us on, really appreciate uh, you spending a little bit of time with us. Well, we're so happy to have you, so thank you. But I think what would be useful to kind of get a feel of Fuel Ventures and yourselves, would it be okay if you both gave a little bio of your experience to date? Absolutely. Mark, do you want to go first? Because you're more important than I am. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I'm going to get you for that later. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll tell you where we come from and where we are now. And then Ollie can definitely uh, bring to life what we do on a daily basis. So we're really proud of what we built at Buell. We're about five years old now. Prior to that, I was an entrepreneur. Built my own company kind of from mid-2000s. I uh, built my own marketplace. I started it with a couple of thousand pounds. It was a consumer marketplace for coupons and price comparison. Uh, the business was called My Voucher Codes. It went on to become pretty successful. Uh, I ended up getting up to around 10 million of revenues, and it was around three to five million of profit every year. I was very fortunate enough that I was the sole shareholder. Uh, ended up having around 70, 80 employees in different countries, distributed teams before they were even cool. And I ended up exiting that business to going along the whole eight year journey and exiting it to a listed company in 2014. So that was really my journey before Fuel Ventures was even born. I kind of moved in this direction during that period of running my own company. I naturally started meeting really exciting founders. And honestly, I looked at my own business thinking, I love it, it's my business. I'm growing it and doing all I can. But I mean, these people are way smarter, way more ambitious. And I'm quite ambitious, but they're way more ambitious. And they kind of need capital, of course, you know, and they need, I thought they need more than that. They need, you know, I've gone on that journey and I don't know everything, but I, I know a lot and I know, I know an awful lot of what I wouldn't do the same. And I think that's more important. So I invested in a portfolio of around seven companies. This was prior to Fuel being born. And then companies did quite well. So we had a couple of exits and it really swayed me. Honestly, I was at a crossroads in 2014 when I sold my company because I'm not the type of person to stop. And I thought, am I going to roll the dice again and do an eight to 10 year journey with one company, be an entrepreneur, launch another company? Or shall I do what I think is showing really interesting signs back other entrepreneurs, but really get close to them? The way we operate at Fuel, we feel like we're part of the journey. We're not just a financial transaction. We're on the journey, their journey and our journey. So that's really why we got started. And strangely, fast forward, things have just got bigger, more complicated, more fun, more challenging. And it's been a fascinating journey so far, but we're still young in our journey. I say we're still a startup in our own right. And I, I kind of like that. We're, we're lean, we're young, and we are... Uh, or hands-on and we, we kind of want to keep it like that we don't want to get too big and too ugly we, we like the personality part ollie why don't you take it from there and talk about your part of that story 
Yeah, so I've been I've been at Fuel Ventures for probably about eighteen months now. Um, obviously, you've got Mark, who's our, our sole GP. You've got myself and uh, my colleague Shiv, who are both investment managers, and then we've got an analyst that sits below us called Alex. Um, we also have a, a separate SEIS team. We have Tom and Alice on our SEIS team that deals with our new fund, which we're starting to deploy from April. So as investment teams go, and we work we work independently. So actually, and that's a very important part of what we do because even though we work as colleagues, it's important that from a fund perspective and from an investment perspective, operating from two different funds and two different pots of money, that to, to an extent we're working relatively independently, we're making independent decisions. Um, conflict of interest isn't something that we want to particularly get involved in at this stage. So um, we really, as a team, as a three, I'll call us a three because obviously marks it slightly separately, although as part of the same team, as myself, Shiv and Alex, we, I, I think we work incredibly well together. I mean, our job really is to, to look through that whole process. And, um, you know, we're, we as Fuel, uh, we're looking at marketplaces, platforms and SaaS model businesses, both B2B and B2C. That's our general investment remit, um, writing tickets of anywhere between half a million to two million as part of our initial investment. Um, and so, um, yeah, we have we have a, a great time, great fun, I will say, um, making sure that we're looking for new companies, new opportunities, new sectors. Generally, we're relatively sector agnostic. There's a couple that maybe we won't touch, um, but generally we're very broad. Um, so we get to see loads of opportunities, a whole range, somewhere in the region of 200 to 300 every single month. And, um, and we, we love getting to pick through those, compare comparing pitch decks, comparing performance, and then hopefully making some fantastic investments as well. Awesome. That was a great rundown. Thanks, guys. Um, I mean, a question more about current situations and what's happened over the past year, which has been, it's been really interesting for us to speak to different VCs to see their experience during the pandemic, personal challenges, mm-hmm. um, how they've approached work. What has the last year been like for you guys? Mm. I'm I'm happy to take this on as sort of the the, the trench worker to an extent. Um, we haven't stopped, um, and actually, this is one of the conversations I have with a lot of founders. Um, is they came to us, especially during the early stages of COVID, and sort of said to us, "Are you guys still investing? We're looking for money." And I kind of said to them, guys, we're a bit of a one trick pony. I mean, in terms of investment, we're relatively popular. We've got good investors. We raise decent funds. We're deploying, like I said, about 15 to 25 million a year just from our core fund, not including the other funds that we look at as well. Um, And we are an absolute one trick pony. We can only invest in a single asset class. And that is you. Like we literally can't invest anywhere else. We can't decide to diversify and go to public markets or property or you know, whatever it is that that the other investors may be looking at the time. We've seen the angel market sort of shrink quite a lot during this point. And I think hopefully it will get to a point where it expands again. But but from my experience and from Fuel's personal experience, our VC market has still been very active. And that's because although we, um, we're, we're cautious and we're, we're making sure that we're keeping an eye on the progress of COVID, um, we still need to be investing. We still need to be deploying. The only thing that really changed about what we do is we had a conversation one day about this and we sort of decided if the business was doing well before COVID, if the business was doing well during COVID, then that's a solid business. And that's something that we want to take a closer look at. So Beyond that, our investment remit didn't change a whole lot, if I'm totally honest. Um, and um, and as a VC, as a relatively small team, working remotely was never a massive challenge for us. The only weird thing from my perspective is that we have done some deals, obviously relatively sizable deals and, you know, 1 million plus. Well, I think our average ticket is about 1.3 million, um, where I have never shook hands with the founder. 
And that is, that's odd. That's an odd feeling because generally during the, towards the end of that process, we'll go out for coffee or we'll go out for a drink. We'll get to know the founder a bit better. We'll bring them into our space, introduce them to other members of the team. We haven't been able to do that. And that's unfortunate, but it's part and parcel of the situation we're in right now. We can't complain too much because we've been super busy. COVID's been bad for a lot of people. So um, we, we sort of just have to take a lot of positives with what, with what we're doing and what we've done. Yeah, and probably to add to that, I, I, I like what Ollie said, that I think one of our unwritten kind of processes is always being in a room with founders and the founding team. And there's something I can never write down in our investment thesis, and it's the feeling. You know, you know, you can take them, are they this, are they that, are they smart, are they ambitious, does the business make sense, is it in a big enough market, tick, 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 tick. But the feeling you get, do they get you excited? I mean, sometimes I say, does the hair stand up on the back of your neck? And do you know these individuals or this team, they're really going to make something really excitable happen. They're just going to make it happen through the thick and thin, the tough. Uh, And that's a little bit harder to pick up on Zoom calls or video calls, but you can. I I think we do a few more sessions. We're really digging a little bit deeper personally and everything else. But that's, that, that was the hardest thing to really change over. Everything else was pretty streamlined, but that was one thing that we had to probably adapt to. Uh, you can still pick it. I just think it's diluted by a video, but you can still get that feeling. Yeah, right. But you mentioned actually a very hot tip that I think is worth sharing to the ecosystem just before we started recording of how you're reducing the time founders have to repeat themselves up the chain. And actually, in your guys' case, it only seems to be two meetings, really, where they meet different people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd I'd love to get you to share that top tip. Yeah, I'm always looking to optimize and it's our time as well as the founders and the founders team's time, which is really valuable, right? And uh, given as the team started to grow, we're still a small team, but as the team started to grow, that agility is slightly slowed internally. And I'm the block and, you know, they're trying to fit it around my crazy calendar and all of the above. And I didn't want to be the blocker. So I said, go ahead. Remember when I mentioned that founder or team spark and the hair on the back of the neck? Well, if I missed that first pitch, I felt like Ollie and Shiv and the rest of the team are all excited about the business. And I'm just seeing a deck and a write-up. It's not the same. So the suggestion was internally, if the founder's okay with it and we're just using it internally, can we record that first pitch session? And it means if they can't get me on the first call, I'll see it. You won't have to rinse and repeat yourself to me, you know? And I think it's really great because then I can see it night, day, even in weekends give feedback and it means as a team we can move a lot quicker and it means as a founder you don't have to do all the same rigmarole all over again i know you did it you did it really well just rinse and repeat it again for another hour just for mark's benefit i hate that i feel like a cupid in the room making them repeat it a second time you know so i I think that's quite nice for productivity and most founders have been really open to it and it just means i think internally we've only been doing it for a couple of weeks but, you know, it's helped us move that much quicker, you know, and I think we're, we're turning around answers quicker and even follow on questions. Nice. I love that. It's such a good tip. Um, so thank you so much. 
Um, but I, I'm keen to hark back to pre-COVID days, actually. And, and Ollie, from previous discussions, I remember you having a pretty interesting background. Um, yeah, so my background's a little bit different. I mean, I don't come from, in terms of education, I did very well. I don't come from, you know, Russell Group, Oxbridge, that sort of group. I went to the University of Kent in Canterbury, um, had a fantastic time, fantastic three years. And um, I, I, did a, I did a war studies degree, which is essentially a history degree degree if I'm honest I mean I love my time at university but it really was they just sort of run out of places on the history course and decided to extend it a little bit more with a with a war studies course um but that's essentially what it was it was it was very history based it was a, a BA not a BSc um it wasn't economics or it wasn't you know business or it wasn't any of that it was it was what it was it was a war studies humanities degree when I left university which was back in 2014 I I went straight into retail and commercial banking um I worked for a, a very nice bank it was a bank called Svenska Handels Bank now they're Scandinavians they're Swedes so they'll look after you fantastically well as an employee that's kind of their bread and butter that's what they do but it just wasn't for me it was too insular it was too I would go and sit by the same desk every single day you know people would come past oh what you know why aren't you why aren't you wearing your tie because oh, you know it's 30 35 degrees and I don't, wear, I don't want to wear my tie do you know what I mean like it was that kind of environment which just didn't work for me it does work for some people some people love that environment and that's that's fine but it just didn't work for me um I, I left Handles Bank after about a year. Um, I joined a, a startup company that I actually found on Crowdcube, um, which um, didn't last long, but it was a fantastic experience. Uh, it didn't last long because um, the business ran out of money. I was made redundant effectively after about five months. Um, for me, that was probably the best job I'd had or the best experience I'd had up until that point professionally. I mean, it was just so dynamic and there was something different every day. You know, there was meeting loads of new people. There was picking up Slack where Slack needed to be picked up. It was just different. There was so much going on. And the concepts that I could work outside of an office, like this idea that, oh, by the way, you know, we just need you to go down here today. We're doing some filming or we're doing, you know, we're doing an event or we're doing this. You know, going outside the office used to be a treat. I mean, going somewhere else apart from your desk used to be a real treat when you were in the banking space. But now, now it was part of your everyday role. Um, so I spent about six months, five, six months there. Um, business went under. At that, that time, I was sort of very aware that my skill set wasn't probably wasn't applicable to a lot of early stage businesses. Um, I wanted to stay within that startup space, but I didn't come from a heavy tech background or I didn't come from a heavy experience background in terms of business development or anything like that. I was still very young. Um, so um, I was very lucky. I started looking at the funders. So I started looking at people like the crowd funders, uh, the seeders and the crowd cubes and, and that sort of thing. That was an area that I wanted to get involved in. And I actually ended up at a platform called Syndicate Room based in Cambridge, uh, who was still running, um, still very active. They moved slightly away from the crowdfunding model now. They work on a, a follow-on fund model but I was there for about three and a half years. I, uh, I ended up as the, the senior associate, so or senior analyst, I should say, um, leading the analyst team. I was there from a relatively early stage uh, and spent three and a half years helping to grow the business as best as I can. Um, and again, great experience. I had wonderful people, wonderful time, great business, and just a lot of fun just doing loads of different things. It was so dynamic. And I do, I do encourage this. I mean, whenever, when anyone ever says to me, oh, and I know that you both would have had the question before, you know, how did you get into VC? And I say, actually, the one thing that we lack so much in the UK is this sort of operator experience. Don't feel like you need to go out and build a company. You don't need to go and create a unicorn to become a VC. Just get out there and just show a bit of empathy to these people, right? Because when you're investing, especially at early stage at seed and series A, um, 
part of your experience isn't just where you can go it's just being part of it understanding the the nuances and the the situations that you get in early stage businesses and what people have to do in order to keep that business going um and it's so so important that you can have those discussions with your founders so i was at syndicate room for three and a half years um had a fantastic time the business pivoted slightly i decided at that point i wanted to work with more managed funds I knew Mark, but actually mainly I knew um, Stan. Stan's our senior associate. Um, he was uh, the guy that I used to bump into in the WeWorks and the you know the events that we go to, the panels that we were on. And I, I knew Stan was at Fuel, and I saw that there was a job opening. I applied, and you know the rest is history. Well, yeah. Speaking of history, why did you decide to study war studies? Uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I start, I mean, I do know. I decided to do it because it was a space that I was interested in. And I went to Kent and I really liked the campus. And they said, I went originally looking at the history course and they said, oh, by the way, what, what sort of history are you interested in? And I said, oh, well, I really like sort of military history, you know, post 1800. That's the sort of space that I really enjoyed which is a weird thing for, for a teenager to say, but I said it anyway. And um, they said, well, we do have a specialist course. We have a war studies course, if that's something you're interested in. At the time, I thought, well, that's a good idea because that's something I'm really interested in. Looking back on it now, would I have done war studies? Probably not. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was great fun. Would I have maybe spent my time doing something more practical? Yeah, I probably would have. But at the end of the day, it's butterfly effect, right? If I hadn't done a war studies, maybe I wouldn't be in this position now. And I'm chuffed with where I am now. I'm chuffed with what I'm doing. So you know, maybe it's sort of come to a good conclusion. I chose it because it was something that I liked doing and that I was relatively passionate about. I didn't really think about the job market and things like that. Um, but um, yeah, like I said, it's all turned out pretty well. So uh, no complaints. No, I like that. And I, I read biology simply because it was my favourite subject at school. Mm. And I think that should be encouraged at 18. You know, you've got no idea what you want to end up doing. Mm. So why mm. not do something that you're passionate about? You're, you're probably going to work towards um, you know, making a good degree out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least I, what I would say is, I mean, I could never, your, I mean, at least yours was a BSc, right? People always look at BSCs and think, yeah, BSc, that's a proper proper degree. Um, but uh, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think to an extent, this is probably the one place where I look at something like the American system where they've got like, mm. you know, minors and majors and things like that. You can diversify a little bit more. And I think actually that seems like a really good system because for a group of people, for, I mean, I don't know who you went to university with. But the group of people I went to university with didn't, have, didn't even didn't even know who they were, let alone what they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. So this idea that it's like you pick a subject, you pick one subject and that's what you do is probably quite restrictive. But yeah, I had, I had a lot of fun and that's also important too. I, I want to I want to tip the conversation on its head now because I'm sitting back being the alien, maybe the alien of all of you here like scratching my head thinking, why are we talking about degrees? And I know it's common in this industry. But I didn't look at that. For Ollie's CV, that wasn't that. I've, I've just been educated on a little bit further back of Ollie's. And whether whether I didn't take the time to read that far back into his CV, I was more interested in his hunger, his drive, his capability, and his recent experience. So he, he had started experience. He know how to pick a good one, how to get rid of the, the not-so-good ones. And that was more important to me than any of that. So you will see that as a massive trend, even in my previous business, I wasn't about looking. I mean, honestly, I don't I don't even look at the degree, the education part. It's about what you've done more recently. And even if you haven't had a job in that space, and you know, it's hard to break into some industries, it doesn't mean you can't get experience. You know, what in, in this world, 
if Oli hadn't worked as Syndicate Room, what could he have done? What could, what could, could he got involved in hackathons? Could he have worked at various startups, even as a free, whatever, employee, just to be involved and show his capability? That's more interesting to someone like me, mm. where, where you've made something happen. I mean, we had someone apply for a role recently. They've never worked in VC. I want them to work in my deal scheme and pick deals. And the way they really proved themselves, they've gone and researched industries. I think they looked at investment apps and, and fintech, and they and they wrote little white papers up, and they were comparing what businesses they think are hot and what trends are thinking not. And that captured me more than a CV. You know, and I think that's important to hear. And not all VCs are going to think like that. They might want to tick the box. So don't take that advice from me. But not everyone thinks the same. Yeah, I think that's super valuable to to mention. And and I think having that come from a partner and from a, you know, a founder of a VC, I think it's, it'll be really encouraging to people who are listening who feel like they're potentially in a headlock because, you know, they maybe made a decision that they didn't, you know, think out fully when they were 18, because who thinks out a decision fully when you're 18? I mean, does your experience, you know, Mark, and and your background, how does that lend into the culture that you've built at Fuel and also, you know, what you've just said, because you've had like a very successful, but equally very colorful and like non-linear career path? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, my background was very different to all of this. I mean, I, I like that. I like, I like being the odd one out in a, in a good way. I started out being a chef. I did terrible at school. I like really terrible. I think compared to all of you, terrible, right? I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like school. I was going to be a chef or a fireman. That was what they told me in the library when, when, when we were talking about careers. I don't really like heights, so that was out the window. So I trained to be a chef, and I... Like anyone individually, when I chose what I was going to do, I really focused on it and I started to excel. I trained up in, in Merseyside where I grew up in the Northwest. When I come to around about 18 years old after doing two, two and a half years of training, I ended up winning a student chef competition. And that strangely is a, is a great way that the big restaurants and big hotels hire people because they look for the standout talent. And then the job offers, literally without applying, the job offers come on the table because they pay terrible wages and they just want good talent. And I and I had an offer and, you know, I had to get some advice, what's good. And I moved away from, from Liverpool to London at that age, not knowing anybody. Honestly, I didn't know anyone in London. And I moved, uh, my first job was in Claridge's Hotel. I had got the job without even going for an interview. It was just, yeah, you've got the job, which is good and bad. I was on a measly 16K a year. I couldn't make ends meet in London. You work all the hours under the sun. And that was my first career for a few years. And then Gordon Ramsay took over uh, as the chef of Claridge's. Got to work with him for a little bit. And then realized the world was bigger than just that industry. I always wanted to be entrepreneurial, but couldn't ever find the way to break out. Like I had no money. I had no time. I was working really hard to make ends meet. And then weirdly going on that path and i liked what you just said pedra about how people kind of go on their own journey and my journey was that i, I was in that industry uh catering hospitality i was training to be a chef i looked up the ranks and the guy had been there for 40 years and i don't think he was on that much money and it didn't look super happy you know and i just thought is that really what i want and i, I was lucky enough to be a bit bold break out 
of Claridge's and went to work for an independent restaurant. Uh, I was the little head chef in a much smaller venue, which was great, more independent, more diverse. And actually, the number one customer of that venue, a lady called Trisha, she used to come in every day and she had a red Porsche. And I'm like, I don't know who she is. She's whining and dying every day for lunch with her girlfriends. And I'm like, I don't know what she does, but fascinating, right? And she gave me a business card once and said, Mark, your food's fantastic. You're wasted in this venue. We should do business together. And I'm a big believer in fate. That was my fate moment where I was like, you know, weirdly I put myself on that strange path. And she said, you know, let's go into business together. You run the restaurant, I'll run the drink sales. And she had a gastro pub in Clapham. Two years later, we had three venues. I was an entrepreneur, I was making my own money. And that was where I made the leap to digital because I thought, you know what? I don't even see myself running lots of restaurants. It's a nightmare. It's a headache. It's very people business. And this was mid-2000s. And I just thought digital and tech, I, I want scalability. And that was the point that got me really excited. So not knowing anything, I mean, I'm telling you here, I, even as an entrepreneur, didn't have any skills. I literally had an AOL email address. Like, you know, I just know what Google was. And, you know, that was no skills to be an entrepreneur. But I said, I'm going to be, in a, I'm going to launch a digital bit, an internet business. It was all around then. I launched a small e-commerce business and that just led me step by step into the business I told you about earlier, my voucher code. So that was my journey. Uh, I, I look back at real fond memories of all of that and I, it's totally the unconventional approach. You know, strangely, we'll, we'll probably, at the end of this year, we'll be up to 100 million in AUM. And, you know, it wasn't really the plan. You know, I pinch myself every day going, what, what, how do we do this? People, some people in my old chef and Korean friends, what is it you do again? You know, you know, and they just see some headlines sometimes of a crazy big funding round. And But I love it. Honestly, it, it's it's a job I love. And I, I, I love building businesses and I love being an entrepreneur. I love working with entrepreneurs and I love all the, all the kind of value that can be created in that on lots of different levels. But it's a relationship thing as well. It's a journey. It's not just simply an investment and a transaction. I think we can do that much easier, much less hassle. You know, we can use some spreadsheets, couldn't we, Ollie, and just pick the numbers. And, you know, we can come up with some algorithm. I'm sure we do well. It's more than that. And that's the bit we love. It's the journey. It's the life milestones. And that's the bit that's most important for me. And that's why whenever we hire someone, they probably are unconventional they have they, they have to be capable of doing their role but I, do you know what hunger drive like the entrepreneurs exactly what i look for entrepreneurs i need people like that to work in fuel ventures because we we plan on it outperforming most funds in our space and boldly we, uh, we talk about that and we we how are we going to do it it's not easy i like when shiv and ollie come in probably just shy two years ago it was kind of a blank sheet. The fund was started. We already had processes in place, a little bit rough around the edges. But the great thing about Shiv and Ollie, even though they're relatively, I'd say junior, I think that's fair to say, you know, X, X years industry knowledge, but we got together to shape it. And we've reiterated every week, every month, every year since, just iterated our own process and improved. And we haven't always got it right, but I love the fact we're always improving and we're learning. We're learning most importantly. So that's just how I look at people and careers and business. You know, as long as they've got the drive, the hunger and the passion, the rest of it can come. 
Yeah, that was that was great. It kind of reminded me, I'm reading this book right now called Grit by Angela Duckworth, which like so much of what you guys have said it's it's is like echoing in her research and to to our listeners i highly recommend this book it's been very very inspirational to me and definitely that grit element and the drive and perseverance is you know i can hear it through ollie and 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 you mark and just i wanted to touch on your lp base because you sort of have a bit of a unique setup could you tell us a bit about that this is a crazy thing. When I started Fuel Ventures, I didn't know one investor. Honestly, oh, that's, that's probably a lie, but I hardly knew any investors. I, I, where do you begin? Because the concept was, I want to invest in great companies. In the next 10, 20 years, I want to find great companies and build market-leading businesses. I mean, we don't think small, right? We, we were really bullish in how big we want to build these companies. And to do that, we needed to get capital. I was fortunate enough to be in a position to put capital into the fund, but to do it on a bigger scale, we needed other capital. Mm. And it started off as friends and family, no different to a startup does. You know, and my family didn't have much money. I was lucky enough to be able to work, but friends, a little bit of network, other entrepreneurs, and really the, the snowball started. So we're probably more swayed than most I know into having LPs that are successful entrepreneurs, whether they're operating companies now, some of them are actively and some very large companies. Uh, you know, I think some of our LPs are, are huge, uh, successful CEOs of, of UK listed businesses and, and then highly successful angels, angels that do 50, 100 deals in their portfolio, but they also participate in with us and, and uh, entrepreneurs that have exited their companies. And in a real different selection of industries, fintech, marketplaces, software companies. And I think these are great investors to have alongside us. And I think being a sole GP fund, which is also slightly different, they're really buying into our thesis, our ambition, our hunger, our drive of what we want and why we choose things and how we do things at Fuel, which is similar to their own mindset in a way. And some of them are just investing because they either want more diverse portfolio or they don't want to do it as a full-time job and it is beyond a full-time job to do it properly so we've really relished and thrived off that momentum because strangely people connect people and the reputation is the word of mouth so what i love the most is we don't pay our advisors these are our advisors these are our portfolio founders advisor network who have been there done that i talk quite often about Fuel and the team and me and Shiv and Ollie and the rest of the team being just the glue. We've just got to connect the dots. You know, we've done the hard work. We found the companies. Now we've got to make sure knowledge is shared, information is shared, connections, doors are opened. Because that's really important or as important as sometimes the money. You know, one door and one large contract or many contracts can really be very pivotal to a business than just money. But don't get me wrong. We invest money too, right? But that's the piece that's naturally built and I love it. And it kind of runs away with itself because more and more people every year come in and you know, I'm blown away that I've got investors that I look up to going, wow. I think that's quite important. I think it's quite unique. And I, I think it's really important for the seed stage. You know, I, I think it's easier later on as the companies are more evolved, but at the seed stage, you need more than capital. Even if you don't think you do, you do. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And talking about people you need to convince, it's very competitive landscape at the moment for VCs, all fighting over amazing founders. And I was wondering, you know, you're relatively young compared to the old timers that have had, you know, four or five, six funds proven that they can exit, et cetera, et cetera. And through your own admittance, you all have quite unusual backgrounds. So you don't have that I have 10 years of investment banking and I can tap into Joe in the US from Sequoia. Like, I'm curious to know how, especially that clean slate that you were discussing two years ago, how did you even start go out to what is quite these days a competitive network of VCs and founders, all kind of slightly in a bidding war uh, <laughs> between each other. <laughs> well, first thing, first thing I'll say is I'm glad someone else is finding it competitive because I, I was worried <laughs> it was just us for a period of time. Um, honestly, the start of 2021 has been manic. Like uh, we, we've seen some things that we just don't get. If I'm to- if I'm being brutally honest, we just don't get. Um, and that's kind of the nature why that's happening we don't know. There just seems to be a lot of money in the market. Who's deploying that money? Well, a, a big range of people. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people will come in and be like, I've had 10 years experience investing in public markets, or I was an old hedge fund manager. And it's like, I don't, yeah, but I don't understand what you're bringing to the table here, because actually, you know, you, you look at an 8 million pre-money valuation and you've been in a business for the last 25 years where you look at 8 million pounds and you think that sounds cheap. Because you've been working in the hundreds of millions, the billions, or sometimes even the trillions of pounds when it comes to to making investments and when it comes to to your portfolio, your assets. We work in the range where eight million is expensive. Like we we are always looking to for good deals. We're always looking to access at good prices. And when you say to founders, we don't think you're an eight million pound company. We think you're a a four four and a half five million pound company. Actually, that's a really difficult conversation to have when someone else has come along and told them that they're an eight or a nine or a ten million pound company, which we've seen we've seen in the last couple of months, which is mental. And that's a really hard conversation to have with a founder because they think you're lowballing them. And actually, a lot of the conversations you have to have is. Guys, if you do this now, if you raise at a valuation of eight or nine or 10 million and we're right, which I know we are. So don't try and convince me that that's not the case because I know we are right. Then actually you're going to struggle later on. There's going to be problems. There's going to be problems in terms of returns. And actually, I do sometimes question the investor and I sort of say, does this investor understand the implication of a seed fund investing at a 10 million pound as opposed to a 5 million pound? Do they understand the implications in equity? Do they understand the implications on returns? Do they understand what's going on here? Or are they just do they just have a lot of money that they're sitting on at the moment that they need to deploy and they're not really sure how to deploy it? We are more than a, a price maker. Like, yes, we'll lead rounds. Yes, we're very proud of that. We're conviction investors. That's exactly what we do. We lead rounds and we do set prices, but we don't define ourselves by setting price. We define ourselves by value add. Value add is the biggest thing that we do. It's the biggest thing we bring to the table. Um, If we are giving you a valuation of, and one of the things that we do focus on as a fund is equities, and it's both our equity, you know, making sure that we've got enough equity in the business to make it worth the time, a lot of time that we put in. I mean, we always take investor director positions. We always take board seats. It's a very big part of what we do. We connect with our companies and converse with our companies a lot, at least once a month in the vast majority of cases, much more frequently than that. But if we're giving you a valuation of, you know, four million, four and a half million, five million, 
we are going to be working at equity levels that we think are suitable. You can take money from us. We can take that equity. You can go to series A, you can go to series B. You're going to still have enough equity in that pot to be attractive to those investors. We're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot over that. That's not going to be the, the thing that we do here. But actually, yeah, you might get investors at the moment that will take, instead of taking 20% equity, will take 8% equity. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing because actually, are these investors going to be involved with you? Are you going to be able to back that valuation and show a significant increase in valuation when you then go to your next round of funding? That's important too, because it's important for your story. And your story is what drives investment, is what drives interest in your business. So it's a highly competitive market out there at the moment. The way that we win deals at the moment is showing great value add, which we do. We are absolutely convinced that we add fantastic value to the businesses that we invest in. The second is moving quickly. And I think this is the thing that's generally underrated. Generally, because you know the large hierarchies that are within early stage investors or any investor really, not just early stage, you know, the founder ends up talking to someone like me or maybe someone below me, someone like Alex, one of our analysts. And Alex then says, oh, Ollie, I think this company's interesting. Pass it on to me. I ask all the same questions over again. Then I'd go to my senior associate or my principal and say, look, someone's interesting here. Okay, great. Great. All that. Let me ask the same questions all over again. Then the, then the investment director and then the GPs and then the investment committee. And, and it can take months to come to some kind of established decision on a company that's looking to raise a million pounds, which is just such a long time for a business that is just trying to get going and trying to build and trying to innovate. So generally, we can get to term sheets pretty quickly, three to four weeks we can get to a term sheet. Um, and um, and that's because we operate a relatively small team. Um, we can come to those decisions pretty quickly. We can do the work that we need to do pretty quickly. Um, and we can progress pretty quickly. So that's one of the big ways that we win deals on top of the value web that we bring. Um, I will say now, we will never pay the highest price. There's investors out there, like I said, that are going to pay you know, higher than we're going to pay because they need to pay to play. They need to give you the, the high valuations just, just to get a snip of getting access to to you as a business because they're not bringing much else to the table. We're never going to be that investor, but what we do is we put everything we can into that business and uh, we, we, we try and help it succeed where we can. One additional thing to add to that, it was probably two or three years ago, and it, it's crazy it took so long for a founder to actually say to us, you know, before I consider that term sheet, can I talk to some of your other founders? And it, honestly, not all founders did that. And, you know, I had that slightly nervous moment, not that there's nothing too bad to hide. It was just, oh, this is the real test, right? Oh, the value adds that everyone says, they all say that. They genuinely all say that. I know we work night and day and evenings and weekends to be the value adds and the LP base and all the stuff we discussed. And then I said, yeah, take your pick, name some names, name companies, and we'll connect you. And then the term sheet got signed 24 hours later. And I was like, wow, that's something we need to use in our armory. That's part of our story now, isn't it? So all the time, whenever we like a company, we will say, don't listen to us. Ignore the value. Ignore all the stuff we've just told you. Go and talk to some of our portfolio founders and they will tell you. And I'll say 97 point whatever percent are probably happy, very happy, very, very happy with the value we've had, the support we've given. Uh, and that's out of 43 companies now. That is a real big point. And, it, you know, I love that. And it means we, if we're willingly up to say, go and talk to our founders, it means we've always got to up our game. And I like that as a team, because the founder can be honest. They should be honest. They are honest. So that's really important. And I think that is 
a little bit of an advantage when all your founders are raving about yeah, uh, 100%. And you mentioned earlier that one of the value adds that you bring is your network of LPs. Is there anything else that you often help the startups with? Yeah, I mean, there's one major thing, and I'm sure Ollie can add many more, but one major thing that I strategically really doubled down in probably three or four years ago, and it was the follow-on funding part, because as an angel investor before, I always used to remember, you know, it's easy writing the first ticket. You're in, it's great, isn't it all wonderful? I very quickly realized most companies take twice as long to get there and they spend twice as much money. That's that's very common. Uh, and that's still okay. If you model that into your model, if you divide it by two and extend it by double, I think that's, a, and you're still happy with the outcome and that's a good investment. That, that That's a, a nice thesis. Continue with that. So, be in that early seed stage, it's vital. And as Ollie mentioned, it's vital you get that trajectory going. So the next stage of funding, you know, normally a funding round lasts you probably 18 months. And it means you're probably out there raising four, five, six months before that 18 months runway's over. So we purposely built a team internally. And you mentioned that, you know, if you're not connected to Sequoia and you haven't had lunches and dinners with them for the last 10 years, does that make you a bad investor? Well, actually, our entrepreneurial journey, building companies, our portfolio that we've managed to build up over the years is getting attention from these investors. And there's nothing better than saying, you know, and especially in the world of Zoom calls now, 20 or 30 minutes, little connection with a lot of these. And we've got a dedicated team. I think we've got eight or nine team members constantly doing, it's now virtual coffees, but normally it's coffees. And just connecting to investors of all sorts, that might be angels, that might be family offices, that might be uh, VCs, that might be private equity funds. There's a real selection, corporate VCs. And, you know, I'm proud to say that journey has continued and built a lot of momentum. And we probably have one of the biggest black books in the industry now. You know, we're up there and we've got great relationships. And I can proudly say, I don't know, get shoot me down if I'm wrong, Golly. But we've succeeded so far on all of our companies going on to raise that wanted to go on to raise an A and a B have gone on to raise. And it's been a competitive round with multiple term sheets. And that's a good thing. We're building a reputation. And that is a really important part of our package to make sure we can help these founders. And uh, you know, I can't emphasize how time consuming and strenuous and draining it is. It's all exciting and part of the journey for founders, but it is hard work and I'm not taking it all away I'm just taking some of the hassle away you know if we can get you into them first conversations with the right people and we can build momentum that's really important so that's a very important piece for us any other bit glad Ollie yeah I guess the only other bit that I'd add quickly is that we generally see ourselves as commercial operators I mean where where we add the most value is on the commercial side of the business not necessarily on the product side of the business so where we tend to dedicate our investment thesis is towards product founders so we sort of we're a generalist fund right so we can't we can't really specialize in all areas and all products so actually one of the things that we take a real good look at when we're doing our investments is making sure that the founders themselves have enough experience in the space and their sector and their product to, to, to be able to build and develop that product. We can get involved on the commercial side, like Mark said, with the investment, when it comes to things like pricing, when it comes to introducing to larger companies, when it comes to introducing to potential partners, 
we're great at that. That's what we do. That's, that's the value add that we add. Recruiting is something else that we we look quite heavily at and getting involved in. Um, but um, yeah, we tend to leave the visionary product side to the founders because actually the reason that we're investing in them is because they're awesome and because they know how to do that a lot better than we do. Mm-hmm. And one was probably is one final thing. That network of founders now, even though we are a generalist and investing broad sectors and industries, actually with 43 portfolio companies, kind of all independent and non-competitive companies, the amount of value and the amount of clusters we're starting to get. So you're the fintech, you're the software, you're the B2B, you're the marketplaces, and they all have similar opportunities and challenges. And there's nothing more powerful. I mean, knowledge transfer is the most important part. Don't make the same mistake twice. And that's my that's the biggest thing I take away from being on my own entrepreneurial journey. It's okay to make mistakes. They can be timely. They can be costly. You, if you, you don't try new things and test new things, you're, you're, you're naturally going to make mistakes. But you've just got to win more than you lose. Your punts, your bets have got to be more successful than not so. And by just sharing ideas, sharing knowledge, sharing service providers, recommendations, introductions, clients, all of these things are so important. And actually, that's another thing that's gained momentum. And I've really seen kind of come into its own. And, you know, even more so probably during the last 12 months of COVID, because it's all digital. We have a really active Slack where, where all our founders are there and they're all sharing opportunities and, and whatever, and new software, new solutions they find, new service providers. And I think that's really, really valuable because I just imagine and crave for how valuable that would have been to me when I was kind of getting going on that business journey. Okay, great. Um, You know, looking ahead, where do you see yourselves sort of at the end of 2021 going into 2022? What's the um, future growth of, of Fuel Ventures? Yeah, I mean, that's really nice. When I started out five years ago and we we started writing our very first tickets, they were relatively small. They were a couple of hundred thousand pound tickets. You know, they were very early seed tickets. And then maybe a year or two later, we were doing half a million tickets, which seemed to have a little bit more of an impact and you can do much more with and you get a a good size equity, but also the founders get a decent amount of capital to really grow. And then now... As we've scaled, and I think this year specifically, we're doing very, very well. The fundraising has been very strong this year. We're kind of having record year already, and we're only, what, in, towards the end of February. So we're now able to write quite commonly one and a half to two million pound seed tickets, which is kind of our whole optimal point. It's exactly what we think a company needs. You know, how do you build a globally super ambitious business? with a couple of hundred grand. That's that's a lot, that's a line I talk to my LP base about. And then we're kind of there now, which is a great thing. And we've structured our teams to really work around what we need to do as a fund and as a business. And more excitingly this year, uh, very quickly, we've launched an SEIS fund. So actually, whereas we've been doing 10 to 14 investments a year which is quite active you know we're doing quite a lot and deploying quite a lot of money each year already now we're going to be deploying quite a lot more and we're going to be doing a lot more companies so we've recently expanded our team ollie can definitely talk a little bit more detail on on the, the nuances of who does what and how it works but moving forward and especially in the next maybe 12 to 24 months i see us doing more 
than 15 deals a year. And that's from our main fund of them, them larger to our size seed tickets. But we will be doing 30 plus smaller 150K tickets. And these are the concept early stage companies. So I'm really excited because I'm very bullish on the ecosystem, the UK technology ecosystem. You know, my, my love for founders and the opportunities and even what it can do for the economy, given where the world sits right now on Brexit and all of the above, it's very exciting. But I'm really excited because I think, I just say watch this space because what we're about to move into is kind of up the ante and up the scale. But while keeping our quality, we're very detailed on the quality of the portfolio. So there's a very fine balance act there. Ollie, why don't you talk about how them teams are split, where you operate, how you interoperate with the what we call the SEAS team, the earlier stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so we as Phil, we really we operate three funds. So we have our SEIS fund, we have our what we call our scale up fund, which is our EIS fund, and we have our follow on fund, which we deploy a couple of times a year. So our core fund is our EIS fund, the scale up fund, which is what myself and Shiv and Alex deploy. Usually the companies are doing anywhere between five k and hundred k monthly recurring revenue, um, and um, and that, that's usually a group of ten to fifteen every single year. Um, as Mark mentioned, we've got our SEIS fund. Um, our SEIS fund will probably be doing the 20 to 30 deals a year. Um, that's led by Alice and Tom, um, so a completely separate team. Um, I imagine somewhere in the region of you know 30% of those companies, maybe more, hopefully more, will, will come through that fund and come into the EIS fund. It was a real natural progression for us. I think most a lot of people would say, well, why don't you go up the food chain? Why don't you use your core EIS fund and then go up the food chain into... Um, into series A and maybe even series B. And you know what? In time, we probably will. You know, it's something that we'll do. It's something that's on our pipeline. But actually, it wasn't the big priority for us. And, and I think the key reason being is that SEIS is still so underrepresented in the UK. I mean, it's a really good scheme. Investors generally like it, but um, it, it's still relatively underrepresented on, on a professional investor level. Um, and, and we thought it was a fantastic way to get fantastic, good deal flow into our core fund. Um, to be able to pick up those deals quite early, to be able to do that due diligence very easily and to be able to deploy that capital um, relatively quickly and relatively effectively. And then we've got the follow-on fund, which is generally managed by, by myself and Shiv, um, where we invest into portfolio companies a couple of times a year. And I, I think importantly, we probably doubled headcount in the last 12 months, I'd say, Ollie, probably even a little bit more. We'll continue to grow. Ollie will be looking for people within his team within the next 12 months, I think, because as mm-hmm. our fund sizes get a little bit larger, as I said, the amount of deals we're doing may grow, probably will grow in a, in a steady, stable manner, but it will grow. And I think, yeah, look at the bags under Ollie's eyes, you know, he's kind of... Uh, knackered. I'm knackered. We're, we're pushing it. We, we, we love it. And we, we, we're very fortunate. We love the industry and we love the role. But, but it, it's a, it's full on. And the more portfolio companies you take, the more time, the more challenges you fix and all of the above, right? So, so we will be growing that team and are actually actively looking to expand that earlier stage concept SES team right now. So we've currently got two. We'll probably need four. If we're going to be deploying into 30 or 40 each year, that's quite a rapid fire. We, we need people on the ground searching for these great companies. And as I referenced early on in, in this session, I look for people that stand out. You know, it's it's less important about your educational background and what you've done. I'm more interested, how are you going to help us find the next hottest startups? What are you doing in the ecosystem? Who who are you connected to? Or how are you going to get connected to them? You know, how are you going to stand out? That's going to be really important for me. So 
actively open and looking there. So very much, I think that'll be music to Tom and Alice's ears, I think. Great. And I suppose one final question from me, how do people get in contact with you guys? Wow, this is fun. LinkedIn's a nightmare, so you'll occasionally get me blitz LinkedIn. So come LinkedIn if you want, but it's not going to be my primary choice. I think through the website, to be honest, I think that might be my best route. So there's a contact form on the website. It lands in my inbox and the rest of the team's inbox. So they'll all see it. Uh, that's a good way. I think, Ollie, people yeah. Directly. Yeah, people approach me. My LinkedIn is also quite hectic, but probably not quite as hectic as Mark's. It's still a relatively good way to get in contact with me. Apart from that, we, we do have an online form that people can, can fill out. We do get a lot of applications, so we can't get back to everyone, but we do want to try and keep things as open as we can. So we didn't want to be the sort of the VC that was like, we'll only deal with warm introductions. Um, so we do have an online form. That form does come to all of our inboxes. We do see the opportunities that come through that. Every single one we do take a look at. So um, that's uh, that's a really good avenue as well. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Ollie and Mark. It's been such a pleasure to have you guys on and super, super insightful. And I hope when, when listeners who have maybe a bit of an unconventional background listen to this episode, I hope they'll feel encouraged when they're applying to VC jobs and not sort of feel... Uh, frightened away from you know what might seem to be a pattern in in hiring for for a lot of funds um to our listeners thank you so much for for tuning in to the second episode of season five we're super excited for the rest of the season as always you can email us on associatedpodcast at gmail.com and don't forget to follow us on twitter at associated underscore pod thanks bye